Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 to 26 and 4, 4 to 7. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which his toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should drink, eat and drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business and get of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Uh, I want to welcome everybody here once again to Good News Church. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I decided to wear my uh, thunderstorm cloud tie uh, in honor of Ecclesiastes because that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of doing. It's raining on our parade a little bit. Uh, but I think sometimes we need that because uh, sometimes maybe our hopes and our, our search is directed towards uh, things that are not really substantial. And sometimes what we need is a reminder of uh, where these things end up and ultimately where substance is found in Christ. So. I'm going to invite you to pray with me before, and uh, we'll get started in looking at this passage. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you that you are a God who is good, that you give good gifts to your children, uh, to your people, uh, that you even want us to enjoy these good things. Uh, we also know that you created us to work and to toil. Uh, but as we look at this topic of toil, uh, especially maybe for many of us in New York, uh, we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see uh, perhaps some of the things that need to be revealed in our own hearts. Uh, but more importantly, point to us a greater glory that's found in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, as I said before, we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, the way we're framing this series is a search. And there's this character here named Kohelet, and he is searching for something that will fulfill him. And last week what we looked at is his search in pleasure, and we said that uh, ultimately the way that you enjoy pleasure is by 
first finding pleasure in God. And in a paradoxical way, you actually get to enjoy the pleasures of the world more. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the search for fulfillment in the topic of work or achievement, or as the word is used here, in toil. And uh, even though I think these are separate topics and we're looking at these topics separately, I actually think the topic of pleasure and work are intertwined and related. Because oftentimes there is this tug of war that's taking place between pleasure and work. Some of us, we work so that we can enjoy pleasure. Uh, others of, of us, we need to enjoy pleasure in order to recharge for our work. And usually what takes place is, again, there is this relationship between work and pleasure. And I think for many of us, the ideal situation is we want to find some kind of balance between uh, work and pleasure, work and play, work and life. But you know what makes it so hard in our culture, and especially in New York culture, I think, is work-life balance is not something that is easy to achieve. And uh, whether it's because, you know, the type of people who are drawn to New York, the people come here because of their career many times, uh, you know, a lot of people just throw themselves into their work. And then you add in the high cost of living in New York, and you actually just have to work hard to you know, pay rent and to make ends meet. And I read this uh, interesting article, I think that came out in February. The New York Times did this issue called The Work Issue. And uh, there was this uh, comment in there about somebody saying, you know, this whole idea of work-life balance doesn't exist. Uh, work is always going to trump. Work is always going to overcome the balance and tip the scales. And what we need to start doing is stop talking about work-life balance, but we have to start talking about work-life fit. How do we fit life into our busy work schedules, or vice versa, how can we fit work into our very busy life schedules? And I think that's more of the reality of what many of us are probably experiencing, not so much how do we balance the two, because work is always going to take the majority of our time, uh, but how can we fit things in such a way that we can try to do everything and try to do it all? I think because of technology and the way things are moving these days, you know, that, that traditional nine to five job, I know it still exists and some people here still have it, but it also sounds like that is becoming less and less of the norm. Uh, you go to work maybe, but then you also go home and you take your work home. You do your stuff that you have to do at home and after everything is done, you go back to work, you check your emails, you check your text messages. And uh, that, that division between work and life seems to be fading and, you know, it leaves us honestly, probably very overworked a lot of the times. But you know, work also isn't just confined to employment because I think the reality of, of it is we do a lot of work that's outside of uh, employment or outside of a paid job. Uh, for example, being a student, you don't get paid for it, but that's a lot of hard work. Being a parent and raising a child at home, you don't get paid for it, but that's probably the hardest kind of work where you don't actually get any kind of break. And if you are somebody who is employed with a paid job and you have children, then that is going to place an additional burden on your life. And I know as some people transition from uh, not having kids to now having kids, and in particular mothers, uh, from what I hear, there, there's this struggle that says, you know, when you go back to work after having kids, uh, you, you can't 
you can't be as good at your job as you used to be. You can't devote as much time as you used to because now you have this child to take care of. But then on the other end of it, uh, you, you can't be the uh, parent that you want to be because work is just taking away all of your time and you, you kind of feel guilty uh, all the time. Whether at work you feel guilty because you're not doing the best that you can or at home you feel guilty because you feel like you should be spending more time with your family. And so there is this very heavy burden, I think, that many people are experiencing and go through and I think it's uh, exasperated in the city, in New York City. And I imagine some people will eventually get to the point of kind of saying, uh, is this really worth it? I am tired all the time. I don't feel like I'm actually accomplishing or doing anything well. Is it really worth it to work and to do all of this? Is this any way to live my life? For some other people, maybe work is a means to an end to you, so work is where you get your identity. Work is where you draw things like your confidence or your status or your security. But if you've ever been through a period where you didn't have a job, you're going to find that because of that, because your identity is so wrapped up in your work, you're not going to know how to respond to the question, right, who are you? Right? What do you do? That's always the first question that people ask. And uh, because of that, maybe you'll devote a lot of your time to your work for the intangible things, not simply for a paycheck. But eventually, one day, maybe this will happen to you. You'll just become so frustrated and so jaded by work because you work so hard and you don't get to a place where you thought you would be. You don't get what you wanted. I don't know why I just cut that up, but you don't get what you wanted. <laughs> and you become miserable. And you say, man, I'm so miserable working. Uh, I thought this job, I thought this work was going to give me so many things. It had so much promise. Uh, I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. Is it worth it? Why am I spending 10 years at this one place, this one company, in this one industry doing all of this when I could be doing something else that would probably make me so much happier? But I've been working for 10 years. I only have, I have 10 years of experience just doing this. I'm stuck. I can only do this now for the rest of my life. And you just become very unhappy. And but I'm sure you ask yourself, is it worth it? Why did I just spend all this time doing this work when I'm not fulfilled? And if you fall into that category or either of those kinds of people, you're actually in good company because you look at this passage, Kohelet here, he's also pondering those very similar questions when it comes to work. You look at verse 18, he starts off by saying this, how much he hated his toil. Right? How many of us are saying, I hate my work, right? I really hate it. You can relate to Kohelet here. There's some people, I think, that are actually okay with working and it doesn't really bother them. They're okay with doing something that doesn't really you know, fulfill their personal desires and they don't really think about it. But Kohelet is not one of those people. Uh, he hates his toil and he concludes that just like pleasure is vanity, so too toil is vanity. Everything that he does, everything that he achieves, everything that he accomplishes is here one day and gone the next. You know, I had this friend, and he had a brother who was very creative and very artistic, and he went to an art school. And uh, my friend was telling me about his senior art project and what he did, and he spent an entire semester building this really elaborate sculpture out of matchsticks, you know, these tiny little matchsticks. And then when it came to present his senior thesis, you know what he did? He, he took a match, he lit it, 
and he burned it down, right? That was his point. <laughs> that was his point, that he spent all semester and just at the snap of a finger or a flicker of a match, it's all gone and nothing is left. What is the point? What was the point of spending all that time building that sculpture? That's kind of what Kohelet is saying here. You spend a semester, you spend a year, you spend a lifetime working on something, but does it really matter at the end of the day because it won't last? You know, when a high school student is studying for, let's say, a calculus exam, they might start to complain and they might start saying this, when am I ever going to need this? Why do I need calculus? Who uses calculus? What is all the studying really going to do? It's, it's pointless. Ultimately, it's pointless. And if this high school student is brave, they'll challenge the teacher and they'll say to the teacher, why am I learning calculus? I am not going to need this in the future. And how is the teacher going to respond? Right? The teacher is going to say this, you know, well, you know, you need it to go to college. You, you need it to get good grades. You need it uh, in order to have a good GPA. Uh, you need it in order to fulfill the requirements uh, for X, Y, and Z or to graduate from high school. And essentially what that high school teacher is doing is creating these alternative set of uh, meanings for the student. And maybe some of us were like that. Maybe some of us didn't see the point of studying certain subjects in history, but we did it because we said it's going to lead to the next stage in life. But you know what Kohelet would say to that in response? Kohelet would say this, not only what is the point of calculus, what's the point of graduating high school? What's the point of going to college? What's the point of getting a job? At the end of the day, we are all going to die, and none of that is going to matter. So you see the problem here that Kohelet has. He's, he's wrestling, and he's really struggling with the nature of work. And uh, more specifically, he points out two specific problems that he has with work. First, his prob first problem is, as it relates to death, work is temporary. Work doesn't last. In verse 18, he says, I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. In other words, if you accomplish something great in your work or through your work, so what? One day you will die. You can't take that accomplishment or those achievements with you. If you bear a lot of fruit in your labor, so what? You won't be able to enjoy, fully enjoy all the fruit of that labor. In fact, somebody else is going to enjoy all the labor that you did. At the end of the day, everything gets lost. Think about this. Lehman Brothers started 1850. 2008, gone. Bear Stearns started 1923. In 2008, gone. Do you remember near church, there used to be a Borders here? I used to go to that Borders before service and do some reading. Gone. Replaced by Staples. I just walked by today. You know what Staples is? where Staples is? Gone. <laughs> they said go to 34th Street. Whatever you, think about all the employees who work so hard to build these companies, to make these businesses run. What of their work? At the end of the day, gone. When I was in high school, I had a job at a store called Drug Fair. And if you're saying, uh, what is Drug Fair? The reason you don't know what Drug Fair is because that store too is gone. <laughs> I went out of business. But that was my high school job, right? And uh, it was kind of like Target before uh, Target existed. 
actually Target probably put it out of business because Target was a much better version of what drug fair was. But as I was working this job, one of my, uh, you know, my job was basically a stock boy and I had to, you know, fill the stocks, but also I had to clean up the aisles and make sure all the product looked nice. And uh, with everybody that I worked with, uh, there was this one aisle that we hated to clean and it was the toy aisle. Right, so there's this one aisle filled with toys, and the reason why we hated to clean the toy aisle is because as soon as you clean it up, literally not maybe 30 minutes to an hour later, you go back, and it's messy again. It's back to where it was, and you kind of say, "Man, I'm going to spend all this time cleaning this toy aisle, but it's kind of pointless because at the end of the day, all the work that I did is not going to matter. It's going to be gone. Kids are going to come again, and they're going to mess it up again." And that's what our work is like. Nothing lasts. Kings rise and fall. Empires rise and fall. Companies rise and fall. Toy aisles are cleaned, but they only get messy again. And the work that was done yesterday doesn't really mean all that much because it doesn't have any lasting value. So how do we respond? Well, what did the calculus teacher do? try to come up with meaning for our work. We try to create our own meaning and we say this, well, even though I don't like what I'm doing now, it's giving me valuable experience to prepare for the next stage. Or we say things like, well, even though uh, I hate my toil and I hate what I'm doing now, I'm just going to bear it because uh, I think one day I'll be rewarded for all of my hard work and it's all going to uh, turn out well in the end. Or we say, you know, I just need to pay my bills, so work is just utility. And we try to create meaning for ourselves, but again, going back to Kohelet, what he would say is this. So what? What's the point? It's not going to last. His second problem is also this. Sometimes work is just unfair, isn't it? Work is just unfair. In verse 21, he says, Sometimes a person who toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. And I think this is really what drives many people crazy about work, is you work really hard, you do a good job, and someone else gets the credit for it. Someone else enjoys the fruit of your labor. Uh, and sometimes that person is a fool and doesn't deserve the credit and did nothing and maybe wasn't even an obstacle uh, to getting the work done, and yet they still get the credit. Or you work for a boss or a manager or a company, and who profits? Maybe it's not you. Maybe you do all the hard work and somebody else profits. And Kohelet, he doesn't like that either. Not only is it vanity, but according to verse 21, he adds this phrase that it's also a great evil. Just not fair. And uh, if you're working in that kind of environment now, I can only imagine how you must feel. You're probably really frustrated. You're probably really angry. Maybe you've even gotten to the point where you've lost all motivation to do good work. And that's not so different from what Kohelet also feels here. In verse 23, he says, His days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. He is sorrowful, he's annoyed, and he's so upset that even at night, he can't sleep, and he can't rest. And he's wrestling with all of these things. And if that's the position you're in, then maybe you too are wrestling with him about why you are doing this at all. Is it really worth it at the end of the day? If it doesn't matter, maybe just 
If it doesn't matter, then it won't get to you, right? If you don't care about it so much, then maybe you just uh, you live better, you sleep better. Why let office politics and the thought of having the fool enjoy the fruit of your labor destroy and disturb your rest and your sleep? And so maybe we should entertain what it would be like to not work. But then we get sucked back into work because of two things, our hearts and our stomachs. Chapter 4, verse 4, Kohelet sees that all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. And I think what he's talking about here is the desires of our hearts. One of the reasons we work is because we have this mentality that we have to keep up with the Joneses. If our friends or our community or people that we know, if they are doing X, Y, and Z, if they can afford to eat here, if they can afford to travel there, if they can afford to send their kids there, well, we need to keep up with them. We don't want to be left behind. And so our hearts, because of the envy of our hearts, we're drawn back to work, and we, we can't just not work because we need to keep up with everybody else. But here's the other reason why we're just sucked back into work again, and it has to do with our stomachs. Chapter 4, verse 5 says this, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, what, what does that mean, right? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Uh, that's, that's actually an idiom, and uh, when a fool is folding his, his hands, it means that he's idle, he's lazy, right? He's not doing any work. And because he's not doing any work, eventually what's going to happen to him? He's going to starve. And because he's going to starve, he has to eat his own flesh, right? Very gruesome, but it's just an idiom. I don't think anybody actually did that, or maybe, but I don't think anybody actually did that. But why, why do we have to work? Why are we forced to work? Why can't we just decide to not work? Is because we got to eat. We need to provide. We need to not resort to eating our own flesh. And so we have to work. So on the one hand, he says, you know, work is so pointless and work is vanity, work is meaningless. On the other hand, I can't not work because, you know, I have to keep up with other people, but I also have to eat. So therefore, what is the solution? His solution is found in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What does that mean? He's saying this. Maybe the best thing to do is just do the bare minimum. <laughs> Maybe do enough work to not get fired, but so that you can get paid and so you can eat. Maybe that's a solution. And I'm sure many of us who take pride in our work probably have a very visceral reaction to that. If we work with people who are like that, we probably have a very visceral reaction to those kinds of people. But if there is nothing else under the sun, why not approach work like this, right? Why not just do the bare minimum? Why not just have a little <laughs> and make sure we can eat and survive? Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Some of you are thinking, you know, if only people believed in God, then everything would be okay, right? If only everybody believed in God, then we wouldn't have to arrive at this depressing conclusion, right? Depressing conclusion. But God is mentioned in this passage too, isn't he? And Kohelet 
mentions God starting in verse 24, and I think upon first reading, maybe it sounds like his understanding of God is helping him here. But if you take a closer look, I think he's actually struggling with God. I think he's actually struggling with the reality of God. He's saying this, on the one hand, God gives these good gifts of wisdom and knowledge to certain people, to the ones who please him. And because they have wisdom and knowledge, they, you know, they're able to work and gain a lot of things. On the other hand, God may not give certain things to the fool. But you know what happens at the end of the day? The person with wisdom and knowledge, they work, but eventually they're going to die and they're going to have to leave all the good of their work to somebody else. You know what's going to happen to the fool? At the end of the day, he's going to work and he's going to work and give all of his work to the one who pleases God, to the one with wisdom and knowledge. And at the end, they're both in the same boat. Whether you're wise, whether you're a fool, whether God gives you gifts, whether God doesn't give you gifts, at the end of the day, he says in verse 26, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So even, even knowing God and understanding God doesn't seem to solve his problem here. And if you really think about it, these, I think, are some very depressing thoughts even believing in God doesn't seem to make things better for him. And maybe some of us can relate to some of the things that Kohelet is saying here. And if that's us, what do we do? What do we do? What saves us from this depressing view of our work? What saves us from viewing work in such a negative way? Well, it's the gospel. It's got to be the gospel. See, I think Kohel's problem here is not so much that he has the wrong picture of God, but maybe he doesn't have the full picture of who God is. His understanding of God to this point is that he's some powerful figure who arbitrarily gives wisdom and knowledge to some people and doesn't give it to others. But death is still a problem for him, isn't it? What good is it to believe in God when you still lose everything after death? But you see what the gospel is and what the gospel says, and when we get to the New Testament, the gospel actually expands our understanding of God so much so that you know people in the Old Testament, they, they only had a shadow. They only had an incomplete picture, an understanding of who God is and of what God would do for his people. But when Jesus comes, he completes this picture that actually makes all the difference in the world. Think to yourself, you know, I'm sure many, some of you maybe are like Kohelet, so maybe you can have this conversation with yourself, but for everybody else, if you met somebody like Kohelet today, what could a Christian say to Kohelet that he couldn't just argue against? What could a Christian say to him that would also encourage him and make him not lose heart? I think a Christian could say this. You know, Kohelet, it's true that a fool can benefit from the work of another. Uh, Kohelet, it's true that that is a deep injustice and that's not fair. But here's the thing, Kohelet. You assume that you are in the position of the wise and that it is the fool who comes after you who will completely benefit from your work. But you see, what the message of the gospel says is this, that you are not in the position of the wise, but you are in the position of the fool. And you actually are benefiting from the work of another. 
And see, the injustice, the great injustice, is not so much that the work that you do, somebody else benefits from, but the great injustice is actually this, that you benefit from the work that Jesus has done on the cross. But you see, God doesn't have a problem with that because that's called love, and that's called grace, and that's called mercy. And so you see this message of the cross, it completely changes your paradigm upside down, that Jesus is very wisdom personified. He is the one who toiled upon the cross. He is the one who earned life and salvation so that we can have something that we did not earn, so that we can have something that we did not toil for. Kohelet, you have a problem because of the reality of death. And you know, death, death, death does some pretty powerful things to people. You know, uh, I don't know if any of you read ESPN, but there is this uh, article on Tiger Woods that, you know, I recommend that you read, even if you're not a golf fan, even if you're not a Tiger Woods fan. But uh, it was just kind of trying to look into the mind of Tiger Woods. And, uh, you know, they see, the writer at least surmises that the turning point for Tiger Woods' downfall was when his dad died, and he's grappling with the reality of his father's death. And uh, that's why he starts to do all of these military things, because I guess in some way that was his way of connecting with his father. Death does some crazy things, and Kohelet, I know, as you think about your own mortality, as you think about death, you come to this conclusion that everything is vanity, everything is like vapor, everything is meaningless. But you see, what the gospel says is this, part of the work that Jesus did and part of the work that Jesus accomplished, he destroyed death. He conquered sin and death when he resurrected from the dead. And therefore, death is no longer a problem. Because Jesus was raised to life, so too will we be raised to life in this final resurrection. Jesus conquers death and he renders it powerless. Then maybe you point to a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, and you point to the hymn that Paul recites where he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Kohelet, because death is swallowed up in victory, your toil won't be swallowed up in death. And so you see, I think that same encouragement applies. And... You know, maybe in small groups you can try to think about that more and expand it because I know I haven't given a full or a great treatment of it in terms of the implications of it. But as long as our, our perspective on life and the world is not reoriented by the reality of the resurrection, I think this is how we're going to be, like Kohelet. And I think we're going to hate our toil. I think if we believe that the work that we do is... Uh, like we, we needed to leave a lasting legacy, I think we're only going to be disappointed and jaded. I think if we believe that work is always going to be fair and we're always going to receive the credit that we deserve, well, you're always going to hate your work. You're always going to be frustrated. You're always going to be kept awake at night. But you see, if we find our meaning, our identity, our satisfaction, our peace, and our security, in Jesus' work, then whether or not we benefit from our toil or not, it won't keep us up at night, right? That's not to say that you don't stand up for yourself and you, try, you don't try to do what's right. That doesn't mean you don't try to 
even help other people get what they deserve and share the credit that other people deserve for their work. But simply to say this, if that is a situation that you're in, it doesn't have to destroy you or your heart or get to the very core of who you are. Because everything that you are is not based on your work at all. It's based on the work of another. And just like with pleasure, as you find pleasure in Christ, you'll enjoy the pleasures of the world. As you find your rest in the work of Christ, then I think our work will actually be more enjoyable to us. Because we're not going to always be thinking about ourselves and what we get out of it. There's a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and Paul is talking about training yourself for godliness. And this is what he says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. You know, when he's talking about to this end, he's talking about being trained in godliness. And it's interesting that the toil that he, as he saw it, I mean, he uses that word toil a few times, and he relates it to his own ministry too. But in this context, he, he relates it to the idea of toiling for the sake of godliness, toiling and growing in godliness, which, by the way, he also connects with being trained in good doctrine. And uh, when we understand Jesus' work and when we prioritize uh, his work, I think we also prioritize the work and the toil of growing in godliness uh, more than all other forms of toil. And I feel like I have to point that out because we don't live in a culture, and I'm not even just talking about New York culture, I'm talking about Christian culture. I, I feel like we don't live in this uh, Christian culture where we take godliness and holiness as seriously as we ought, that we don't call one another out on sin, that we don't keep one another accountable, true accountability, not the accountability that we want. But the work that we ought to value is the work of growing in godliness. And I think, again, the way we do that and the way we see meaning in that is when we look to the work of Christ and the toil that he experienced upon the cross. I'm trying to find a song after every sermon. I think I found a good one. But Jen didn't know this song, so I hope you know it. Uh, you know, this week I want to read lyrics from, uh, you know, I grew up on classic rock, so maybe people didn't listen to classic rock, but this song is uh, Dust in the Wind by Kansas. Can you just nod if you've heard of it? Oh, nobody's nodding. Yikes. If you, if you hear it, I think you'll recognize it. <laughs> uh, let me give you some context to this song. You know, the lead singer uh, of the group Kansas, uh, his name is Kerry Livgren. And he wrote this song in the midst of experiencing a lot of success from his work uh, as a band. And he was reading this book of Native American poetry, and he was captivated by this one line, for all we are is dust in the wind. And he started to think about his work. He started to think about the success of his work. He started to think about all the things that his work has uh, gotten him in terms of material things. He starts to think about the meaning of his own success and the success of the band. And he came to the realization that no matter how many songs he wrote, no matter how much money he made, no matter how many people loved him or loved his music, at the end of the day, he would die just like everybody else. So he wrote this song. 
I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Now, don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Now, there's an epilogue to this story. He wrote that song <clears throat> a few years later in 1980. His search led him to Christ, and he became a Christian. To this day, he is a faithful Christian who I think he now teaches Sunday school in his church. And whether you're somebody who identifies as a Christian or not, ask yourself, what is it that you are searching for? Ask yourself whether if you find that very thing that you are searching for, whether it will make any difference at all when you die. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. But if your search ends with Jesus, with the gospel, that we will be raised from dust, from death, unto life through his resurrection. That, I think, is a search that makes a difference. That, I think, is a search that means something in the end. And we don't have to conclude with Kohelet here, at least in this passage, not in the book of Ecclesiastes, but we don't have to conclude with Kohelet here by saying all is vanity. Because Jesus himself, in his death and resurrection, gives us meaning. Let's bow our heads and pray. Um, and the worship team will lead us shortly. <clears throat>